0: Chapter 6 of The Mentor 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mentor 2 by Various. Chapter 6. The Mentor, July 15, 1919, number 183. Uncle Sam by Albert Bushnell Hart. Professor of Government, Harvard University. A Picture of Uncle Sam. Best of all the cartoons, which both reveal and point the way in our national existence, and certainly the best among the symbols which represent great nations, stands Uncle Sam. In no other representative character is personality so clearly defined. In no other is the range of expression and of action so great. Inexhaustible are his activities, and of endless variety the moments of thought and of action in which the soul of the nation has been thus caught and fixed. Uncle Sam, farmer, householder, and landed proprietor, has domestic responsibilities upon a scale never known before. One sees him, too complacently, in a rich Jonathan moment, riding the reapers and gathering in inexhaustible harvests. One sees him waking sleepily from a rip Van winkle drowsiness to guard his forests and waterfalls from despoiling hands or with a face less firm than it should have been, settling a dispute among the children, perhaps in a threatened nationwide strike. There is often a fatherly or grandfatherly touch about him. Guardian of western lands and seas, he has not only his own but his stepchildren to look after. One cannot touch the many aspects of his whimsical, doubting, determined, sensitive face. Nearly the whole range of human feeling, of human expression, is there. Honestly, he tries to secure a right balancing of the scales of justice for his multifarious offspring, yet he often finds this delicate adjustment puzzling beyond his power to endure. Swift are the changes whereby his hamlet moments of indecision slip into his Napoleonic moments of great deeds. Something of a woman's intuition is in him, and sometimes, too, woman's overready action in the line of eager and sudden conviction, yet again sinewy, virile, he shows the muscles stiffening along his arm, and he is become the very incarnation of lean and powerful masculinity moving determinedly to a goal seen steadily from the beginning. Margaret Sherwood in the Atlantic Monthly The Story of Uncle Sam Public Health and Education 1. Our country maintains an army and a navy to fight against human beings with whom we are occasionally at war. In the fight against two far more dangerous and insidious foes, with whom we are always at war, disease and ignorance, our doctors have the aid and guidance of the United States Public Health Service, and our schools that of the United States Bureau of Education. These federal institutions are aided, respectively, by state and local boards of health, and by state and local boards of education the public health service which is a branch of the treasury department was formerly called the marine hospital service and was originally devoted only to caring for sick and disabled seamen of the american merchant marine today it is safeguarding the health of everybody in the country It maintains quarantine stations and offices for the medical inspection of immigrants at the principal seaports, establishes domestic quarantines when necessary to prevent the spread of disease from state to state, investigates and suppresses epidemics, collects and publishes health statistics, Makes elaborate studies of important diseases, such as hookworm disease, malaria, pellagra, trachoma, typhoid fever, and tuberculosis. Investigates public water supplies and sewage. Carries on research in regard to school, mental and industrial hygiene. And, last but not least, educates the people in hygiene and sanitation by distributing tons of literature, holding exhibits, giving lectures, lending lantern slides, etc. During a recent outbreak of influenza, the Public Health Service distributed 6 million leaflets in regard to the disease. A new duty of the service is to operate hospitals for the physical restoration and re-education of discharged soldiers disabled in the World War. The service has established a sanitary reserve corps, consisting of medical men and others who are available for active duty in time of national emergency. The Bureau of Education, which is under the Department of the Interior, is the national Clearing House of information on educational subjects. This information is set forth in a large number of valuable publications, And the Bureau also maintains a corps of experts who travel about the country giving advice and conducting investigations in regard to various lines of education. One of the duties of this Bureau is to supervise the expenditure of the liberal funds provided by the government toward the support of agricultural and mechanical colleges, commonly known as the land-grant colleges. Another is to operate schools for the education of native children in Alaska and to look after the government reindeer industry in that territory. A comparatively recent undertaking is the promotion of home gardening under school direction in cities and towns throughout the country and the organization of a school garden army, which has materially increased the national food supply. Another educational agency of the government is the Federal Board for Vocational Education, which was organized in the year 1917. This board directs a scheme of cooperation between the federal government and the states for the promotion of vocational education in the fields of agriculture, home economics, and the industrial arts. Congress has made liberal appropriations for this work, and these are to be increased annually until they amount to $7,367,000 a year. Each state is required to spend as much for vocational education as it receives from the national government for the same purpose. Before this plan was inaugurated, THE TRAINING OF YOUNG PEOPLE AT PUBLIC EXPENSE FOR DEFINITE TRADES AND INDUSTRIES HAD MADE LITTLE PROGRESS IN THE UNITED STATES. SINCE THE WORLD WAR, THE BOARD HAS HAD CHARGE OF THE TRAINING AND EDUCATION OF DISCHARGED AND DISABLED SOLDIERS AND SAILORS. THIS WORK IS CARRIED ON IN THE VARIOUS TECHNICAL TRADE AND COMMERCIAL SCHOOLS OF THE COUNTRY, OR OTHER INSTITUTIONS OFFERING SPECIAL COURSES and also directly in the trades and industries. It is not limited to manual training. The board has announced that all careers are opened to the disabled men. This educational work must not be confused with that carried on for discharged soldiers in the hospitals conducted by the public health service, and for soldiers still in service in the army hospitals. The Department of Agriculture, 2. It would take a good-sized library to tell adequately all the things the Department of Agriculture is doing for the people of the United States. A formal program issued each year sets forth in embarrassed outlines the undertakings on which the department is engaged. Although only a few brief paragraphs are devoted to each project, one of these programs of work fills about 600 pages of fine print. The department is devoted to the 2 task of gathering and disseminating information, primarily for the benefit of farmers, but also directly or indirectly for that of every man, woman, and child in this country. It is also charged with the duty of administering various laws designed to safeguard the health and welfare of the people. Under this head come the inspection of food and drugs, meat inspection, protection of useful birds and animals, supervision of the national forests, and a host of other useful activities. Let us set down at random some of the astonishingly varied tasks with which the department has lately been occupied. Last year, nearly 60 million animals were slaughtered for food under the inspection of the Bureau of Animal Industry. The biological survey treated more than 13 million acres of land with poisoned grain to destroy rodent pests. The Bureau of Crop Estimates published monthly data obtained from an army of about 200,000 volunteer crop reporters. The Bureau of Public Roads administered the Federal Aid Road Act of July 11, 1916, under which the government is to cooperate with the states in road building by means of appropriations which began with $5 million for the year 1916 and will increase annually by $5 million to $25 million for the year 1921. The Bureau of Soils continued its work of mapping and classifying the soils, which work now extends over nearly a million square miles. The Weather Bureau established new observing stations in the West Indies to keep a lookout for hurricanes and added the study of volcanic phenomena to its wide range of scientific undertakings. The Federal Horticultural Board conducted an immense campaign to rid the cotton-growing regions of the country of the pink bollworm. The department as a whole led a nationwide effort to provide means of feeding a hungry world. In a single year, the area planted with agricultural crops was increased by 22 million acres. In 1918, the planted area amounted to 289 million acres. During the same year, the country produced about 19.5 billion pounds of meat, an increase of about 4 billion pounds of Since 1914, a branch of the department known as the State's Relations Service is engaged in educational work on a vast scale. All over the country, its county agents are giving direct instruction and advice to the farmers. There are about 2,400 of these officials now in the field, besides 1,700 home demonstration agents who help the farmers' wives to solve their domestic problems. Farm work is made interesting and profitable to the rising generation by means of some 40 different kinds of clubs, such as pig clubs, corn clubs, canning clubs, and poultry clubs, in which are enrolled more than 2 million boys and girls. Lastly... The department is by far the largest publisher of agricultural information in the world. Last year, it issued over 2,500 documents of all kinds, in editions aggregating nearly 100 million copies. Included in this stupendous flood of literature were millions of copies of Farmers' bulletins, distributed free of charge, and each devoted to some practical topic connected with rural life and industries. Promoting Commerce 3. The Department of Commerce, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Reserve Board, the Interstate Commerce Commission, the Bureau of Markets, the Shipping Board, and many other agencies of the federal government are engaged in promoting and regulating the commercial business of the country. The Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce. A branch of the Department of Commerce collects information about foreign markets for American goods from American consuls, commercial attachés stationed at the principal foreign capitals, and a corps of traveling special agents. The Bureau issues a daily newspaper called Commerce Reports, containing notes and articles of commercial interest from all parts of the world, and a list of foreign trade opportunities. Each of these opportunities for American business in some foreign country is set forth in a brief paragraph. The following are examples. 29267 Chemicals and equipment and supplies for electroplating work are required by a firm in Denmark. Correspondence may be in English. Reference. 29268. A company in India desires to purchase and secure an agency for the sale of steel and iron in bars, sheets, tubes, plates, etc., Builders and Engineers Hardware, Caustic Soda, and Petroleum and Lubricating Oils. References. 29269. The purchase of plywood and veneers in all thicknesses and sizes is desired by a man in England. Terms, credit preferred, or will pay cash against documents. References. An American manufacturer or exporter who is interested in one of these notices can obtain the address of the foreign concern that desires goods, agencies, etc., by writing to the Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce in Washington. The Bureau maintains district offices in several large American cities. At the New York office, which is in the Custom House, there is a permanent exhibit of samples, showing the various kinds of foreign-made goods sold in the principal importing countries of the world. These exhibits, after being shown first in New York, are usually shown in the principal centers of the particular industry concerned. Special exhibits of samples are also held in connection with trade conventions. Apart from commerce reports... The Bureau publishes an immense amount of statistical information concerning the foreign commerce of the United States and foreign tariffs, and also extensive studies of foreign markets for particular lines of goods. The other bureaus of the Department of Commerce are the Bureau of Standards, which facilitates commerce by regulating weights and measures and by carrying on scientific research relating to all the manufacturing industries the Bureau of the Census, which compiles elaborate statistics concerning trade and industry, as well as those relating to population, the Bureau of Fisheries, which has immensely stimulated trade in fishery products, and four bureaus which aid, protect, and regulate navigation, the Bureau of Lighthouses, the Coast and Geodetic Survey, the Steamboat Inspection Service, and the Bureau of Navigation. The Federal Trade Commission is charged with the duty of preventing various abuses in interstate business, especially in the nature of unlawful trusts and combinations. The Federal Reserve Board supervises the affairs of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks and indirectly exercises a certain amount of control over the banking system of the country. The Interstate Commerce Commission regulates interstate transportation, controls freight rates and passenger fares, and promotes the safety of travel by prescribing rules concerning equipment and methods of operation. The Bureau of Markets of the Department of Agriculture promotes business in all kinds of agricultural products and maintains a market news service. The Shipping Board, which was established in 1916, is engaged in the very important work of building up the American Merchant Marine. The Pan-American Union, a potent factor in promoting our trade with the Latin American countries, is not a branch of the United States government, but an international organization in which all the American republics are represented. It has its permanent headquarters in Washington, and the Secretary of State of the United States is ex-officio chairman of its governing board. The Department of Labor. 4. In his annual report for the year 1918, the Secretary of Labor declared that had the Department of Labor not existed in the beginning of the war, Congress would have been obliged to create such a department. During that year mainly under the stress of war conditions. The number of bureaus in this department increased from 4 to 13, and immense efforts were put forth by it to promote the smooth running of industrial machinery at home so that the military forces might successfully prosecute their great task abroad. In normal times, the chief purpose of the department is, as stated in the act creating it, to foster, promote, and develop the welfare of the wage earners of the United States, to improve their working conditions, and to advance their opportunities for profitable employment. To this end, the Department collects, digests, and publishes statistics and information concerning labor at home and abroad, supervises the admission of immigrants into the country and their naturalization, and aids in the adjustment of disputes between workmen and their employers. One of the most interesting branches of this department is known as the Children's Bureau. The law provides that this Bureau shall investigate and report upon all matters pertaining to the welfare of children and child life among all classes of our people, and shall especially investigate the questions of infant mortality, the birth rate, orphanage, juvenile courts, desertion, dangerous occupations, accidents and diseases of children, employment, and legislation affecting children in the several states and territories. The Children's Bureau has been especially identified with efforts to secure effective laws restricting child labor, and it furnished the machinery for administering the United States Child Labor Law, which went into operation September 1, 1917, only to be set aside the following June, when it was pronounced unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. The court unanimously agreed, however, that child labor is an evil, and federal legislation on this important subject, not inconsistent with the Constitution, will doubtless be eventually enacted. A notable development of the war was the United States Employment Service. The department of labor had previously maintained an employment service in a small way under the bureau of immigration for the purpose of helping newly arrived immigrants to find work during the war this expanded into a vast organization for mobilizing the labor resources of the country about hundred public employment exchanges were opened and labor was moved from place to place as required whether for war industries for harvesting the crops or for other purposes during the year 1918 nearly two million wage earners were placed by the service in positions for which they were qualified and in which their services were needed after the armistice an important branch of the work consisted in finding positions for discharged soldiers as a means of recruiting workers for the industries of the country and helping solve the problem of unemployment This service is one of the most promising undertakings of the government, but its future depends upon further legislation by Congress. During the last year before the war began in Europe, the number of immigrants admitted to the United States was 1,218,480. The laws relating to the immigration of the Chinese Exclusion Laws are administered by a branch of the Department of Labor known as the Bureau of Immigration. Immigration stations are maintained at the principal seaports where physical, mental, and moral defectives, as well as persons likely to become public charges or afflicted with contagious diseases. Polygamists, anarchists, contract laborers, and Chinese are eliminated. The most important immigration station is at Ellis Island in New York Harbor. The Bureau of Naturalization... Besides supervising the work of the courts in naturalizing aliens, is in charge of an extensive campaign of educating and Americanizing prospective citizens. The Postal Service. 5. In the year 1790, there were 75 post offices in the United States. In 1918, there were 54,345. The number of pieces of mail handled in a year approximates 20 million. In order to operate this vast business enterprise, Uncle Sam requires the services of 300,000 people. The post office department, constant in service day and night, probably has no rival among government institutions. In 1863, the free delivery of mail was undertaken in half a hundred cities, with 449 carriers. In 1918, there were 2,000 city delivery offices, with 35,000 carriers. The first rural free delivery routes, three in number, were established as an experiment in 1896. There are now considerably more than a million miles of such routes employing over 40,000 carriers. Special delivery service was established in 1885. In an average year, the number of pieces of mail handled by special delivery approximates 50 million. In 1865, there were 419 money order offices, and the money orders issued amounted to $1 three hundred and sixty thousand one hundred and twenty two dollars in 1918 only a very small percentage of post offices did not issue money orders and the value of the orders amounted to nine hundred and forty million five hundred and seventy five thousand two hundred and nineteen dollars the postal savings system was begun in 1911 Within six years, there were upward of 6,000 post offices that received deposits, and the amount to the credit of depositors was nearly $150 million. The smallest deposit accepted is $1, but smaller amounts may be saved by purchasing a $0.10 savings card and affixing $0.10 savings stamps. Interest is allowed at the rate of 2%. The parcel post system dates from 1913. It has gradually been made more serviceable to the public by the removal of restrictions regarding the size, weight, packing, and nature of shipments, and by the increased use of motor vehicles. The department estimates that 3 billion parcels were handled in 1918. On May 15, 1918, The first regular air mail route was established in this country between Washington, Philadelphia, and New York. The flight between Washington and New York requires approximately two hours, as compared with five hours by the fastest railway trains. Other routes are in course of development. During the latter part of the World War, the post office department operated the telegraph and telephone systems of the country. In the year 1918, the department inaugurated a system of motor truck parcel post routes, especially to facilitate the distribution of foodstuffs. The trucks are owned by the government, and many former army trucks are now utilized in this service. A great variety of merchandise is hauled along these routes. All sorts of farm products are carried to the city markets, and the merchandise purchased in the city is distributed through the rural districts on the return trip. The trucks pick up parcels anywhere along their routes, not merely at post offices but at farmhouses, and deliver in the same way. Produce from the country is delivered directly to the consignee in the city house-to-house delivery being made whenever the houses are easily accessible to the regular routes of the trucks. While certain produce cannot be shipped through a post office under the postal regulations, all kinds of produce, including live poultry, are accepted by the trucks where the delivery can be made directly without having to go through a post office. Besides these routes operated directly by the government, many of the so-called star routes, routes operated by contractors, are now equipped with motor vehicles. War pensions, and something better. 6. Although the United States government has been conspicuously backward in, as compared with foreign governments, in providing retirement allowances for its veteran civilian employees, it has generally made liberal provision for those who have served in the Army and the Navy, and especially for the veterans of the various wars in which the country has been engaged. In fact, in the payment of pensions to former soldiers and sailors and their families, not only as compensation for wounds or other disabilities occurred in the service, but also as a reward for brief participation in a war, this country has carried liberality to an extreme, not approached by any other nation. The Revolutionary War cost the United States about $70 million in pensions, and every subsequent war, except the recent world struggle, has added to the pension roll, which reached its high-water mark in the year 1905 with a total of 998,441 pensioners, while the annual payments rose to a maximum of $174,171,661 in 1913. The Pension Office is still one of the largest and busiest establishments of the government, although our latest war added practically nothing to its labors. Shortly after the World War began, and long before the United States became a participator, Congress established a new office under the Treasury Department known as the Bureau of War Risk Insurance for the purpose of insuring American vessels and their cargoes against the risks of war. In June 1917, the government provided insurance for the officers and crew of such vessels. Finally, in October 1917, the Bureau of War Risk Insurance became the agency for a vast scheme of protection and compensation afforded to soldiers and sailors of the United States and their families a substitute for the old plan of war pensions under the new plan three forms of financial aid were rendered as follows one allotments and allowances every enlisted man was required to allot at least fifteen dollars a month from his pay to his wife and children and other dependents to this amount the government added family allowances up to a maximum of $50 a month. 2. Compensation for death or disability. This applies to officers and enlisted men alike and is the same for all ranks, but varies with the size of the soldier's or sailor's family. A bachelor, without dependents, gets $30 a month for total disability incurred in the war, while a married man with three or more children may receive as much as $75 a month. The disabled veteran is also entitled to free medical and hospital service, artificial limbs, etc. In case of death resulting from injury in the line of duty, the widow and family receive monthly allowances. 3. Government Insurance During the war, all persons in the military and naval services were granted the privilege of taking out insurance against death or total disability, whether due to war service or otherwise, up to the amount of $10,000, at a very low cost. This was entirely distinct from, and in addition to, the compensation provided is mentioned in the foregoing paragraph. The war insurance runs for a period of five years after the war, and may then be converted into any of the ordinary forms of insurance offered by commercial companies without medical examination. Up to July 1, 1918, the government received 2,579,912 applications for insurance under this novel plan, representing 21,640,000,000. $65,000 of insurance, an amount about equal to that carried by all the insurance companies of the United States. In some regiments, every man was insured for $10,000, the maximum amount allowed. The Bureau of War Risk Insurance occupies a magnificent new building in Washington and has about 15,000 employees. Besides making these liberal provisions for the relief of its disabled soldiers and sailors, the government has embarked upon elaborate measures for restoring them to health and efficiency. They are not only given the best medical and physical treatment known to science, but also taught various trades and occupations, suited to their condition and natural aptitudes. During the period of treatment and training, they receive an allowance for the support of themselves and their families. The Army and Navy, the Public Health Service, the Federal Board for Vocational Education, and the Bureau of War Risk Insurance all take part in this paternal enterprise. Uncle Sam and what he does for his relatives. On an April day in 1865, a poor old colored woman was walking through the streets of Richmond, wringing her hands and moaning, Oh, Sam's dead, Sam's dead. What's Sam's dead, auntie? asked a passerby. Oh, Lord, Uncle Sam. It was the death of Abraham Lincoln for which that faithful heart was grieving. He was her uncle Sam the representative in human form of America, particularly of the government at Washington, that midpoint of strong and protection of the weak. Yet, after all, she missed the great idea that whoever dies and whoever lives, Uncle Sam is eternal, for Uncle Sam is the American people governing itself. He is the emblem of the force and courage and resolution of the United States of America. THE BIRTH OF UNCLE SAM Among the names by which American heroes and popular figures have been called, how did Uncle Sam come to be adopted as the national denominator, as well as why Americans were called Yankees long before the Revolution, or why Yanks has been the name applied by Allied soldiers to the forces of the United States in the European battlefields and has been accepted by regiments from North and South alike? "'as well try to run down the first use of Brother Jonathan, "'in much the same sense as that in which we now employ Uncle Sam. "'Learned men and some of the unlearned "'have delved deep to find the origin of the term Uncle Sam "'and the significance of his out-of-style clothes. "'One school of these explorers has presumed "'to trace Uncle Sam back to an obscure Samuel Wilson.' who, during the War of 1812, was engaged in a government contract for beef and pork to feed the United States Army. Nobody mentioned this yarn until 30 years later, when Jack Frost, in his Book of the Navy, gave it currency, without stating where he found what he himself calls a silly joke. Frost asserts that from casks marked U.S. by Samuel Wilson... The idea was taken by the soldiers, and that gradually it spread through the army and the nation. The only facts that can be ascertained on this subject are that in 1813 there was a firm of meat packers at Troy, in which Samuel Wilson was a partner. Then that on September seventh, 1813, the Troy Post printed an article containing the expression, Loss upon loss, and no ill luck, except what lights upon Uncle Sam's shoulders. A note in the newspaper goes on to say, This cant name for our government has got almost as current as John Bull. The letters U.S. on the government wagons, etc. are supposed to have given rise to it. A month later, another paper commented on the number of deserters in the army, adding... The pretense is that Uncle Sam, a now popular explication of the U.S., does not pay well. Three or four years later, other newspapers, who appear to have no knowledge of Samuel Wilson, made the far more probable explanation that the term Uncle Sam was simply taken from the letters U.S. on soldiers' caps and knapsacks. Even the Indians accepted the new term and when President Madison was at the Northern Front, asked the privilege to shake hands with Uncle Sam. Note. We have the word of one searcher that as early as 1807 a regiment of light dragoons was raised, whose initials, USLD, on wagons and accoutrement, were waggishly interpreted to mean Uncle Sam's lazy dogs. End of note. Uncle Sam's clothes, like the Quaker dress, were not invented to be humorous, but as the fashionable costume of the period, when Quakers and Uncle Sam's began to appear. Trousers with straps under the insteps were still worn down to fifty years ago, in the days when the striped cotton trousers of the French soldiers began to drive out the old-fashioned knee breeches, Uncle Sam came by his lower protection naturally. The broad-brimmed beaver hat, till very recently, could be seen on the heads of wealthy Quaker bankers in Philadelphia. The star-spangled coats and correctly flag-striped trousers are, of course, the inventions of later patriotic times. What does Uncle Sam do for his nephews and nieces? The great thing about Uncle Sam is his dignity, activity, keenness, endless good nature and love of his countrymen. His cousin, John Bull, is the beefy, sturdy, pragmatic, land-owning squire of the British counties, brave enough, resolute enough, but a defender of his country rather than its most intimate friend. Uncle Sam, and the popular interest in his thousands of portraits, are standing proofs of the common sense and good temper of the American people. We like in Uncle Sam what we like in our personal Uncle Ezra or Uncle Peyton, his genuine, affectionate, thoughtful, and protecting affection for us. The three men in American history who have most nearly corresponded to Uncle Sam in their own personal relations with their fellow man were Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt. Jackson was testy and sharp-tempered, but he could be very genial and gallant when he chose. Lincoln was the Uncle Abe of the nation, in person, in speech, in action, and above all, in his great affectionate heart. He was what we like to think Uncle Sam is. Theodore Roosevelt was not so much uncle as brother. There is only one T.R. in our history. Exhibit of United States Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce In the popular thought, Uncle Sam is ourselves at our best. Or rather, he is ourselves gathered up into one body, one agency, one force. Uncle Sam stamps his initials on the public buildings, the camps, the stores, the guns, the ships, the uniforms, the army wagons, and the army mules. Uncle Sam carries the mails, prints the greenbacks, sends the seeds, digs the canals, lays the taxes, enlists the soldiers, fights the war and makes the peace. Uncle Sam is the national Santa Claus, the trimmer of America's Christmas tree, the free mail order establishment, the ready subscriber to all good causes. In a way, Uncle Sam means the government of the United States. More accurately, he stands for the human side of the government, interested in the people, eager that they should be happy, warding off dangers immediate and far away. Uncle Sam rocked the cradle of the Republic and watches over it with pride, just as the wealthy and generous uncle in ordinary family life looks after a high-spirited, bouncing niece To come down to more precise and commonplace terms, what does the great government of the United States, centered in Washington, do for the people of the United States? The moment we attempt to make a list of his benefits, we discover that they outrun the capacity of any human comparison. The United States government is more like a telephone exchange, with direct wires to every hamlet and household. It is like a vast school, with many classrooms, in which are taught various branches of the same subject, namely, how to make the United States' citizen happier, better, and more prosperous. Out of the many radiations from this central influence, let us select a few of those in which the benevolent side of our government is more clearly presented. For instance... Let us see what the government does for such matters as education, labor, agriculture, commerce, and the carrying of intelligence for the defense of the community, and protection of free institutions here and elsewhere in the world. Uncle Sam's schools. For many years, Uncle Sam left to the people at large the task of educating young people. Except the future officers of the United States Army, and much later of the Navy. These schools have been kept up, enlarged, and provided with magnificent buildings, and they trained nearly all the officers in high command during the war in both Army and Navy. In the course of the war, the number of cadets was much increased, but it was found necessary hastily to set up special officers' schools and training corps in various parts of the country. The United States also takes part in the public education of the states in a variety of ways. It is given to the states for common schools about 80 million acres of land, and for agricultural colleges and similar purposes about 15 million more. Ever since 1887, it has made also money grants to state agricultural colleges for experiment stations and by the recent Smith Hughes Act, is preparing to spend millions for vocational instruction, including farming. The states are obliged to put up an equal amount for the same purpose. Other bills look forward to a larger expenditure, which would aid the states to get rid of the deplorable illiteracy found in some of them. Uncle Sam maintains schools in the dependencies, Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, etc., and the Bureau of Education in Washington is a kind of center and clearinghouse of information and activity in education of every kind. Uncle Sam as an Employer of Labor By far the largest employer of labor within the United States is Uncle Sam himself who had about the time when America entered the war in 1917 520,000 employees in the civil service, besides near 150,000 soldiers and sailors. Besides thus furnishing a livelihood to one person in a 150 of the whole population of the United States, the government carries on a Bureau of Labor, which gets together all kinds of information about labor conditions in this country and in other countries. In 1916, the government passed a special statute for settling the troubles between the railroad men and the railroads, commonly called the Adamson Bill, under which a strike was averted and wages were raised. During the war, a National War Labor Board was set up. To adjust troubles between employers and their hands working in munitions factories and other war industries, and many serious difficulties were settled by this official arbitration board. Thousands of workmen and workwomen of every degree of skill were drawn into the war service of the government, as clerks, as workers in factories, and in many other capacities. Up to the time of the war, the government was much opposed to allowing its employees to join in trades unions. But when in 1917 the railroads, and later the telegraph and telephone operatives, were transferred to government control, they carried with them their existing unions, and even formed some new ones. Uncle Sam, therefore, takes a large responsibility for labor conditions both inside and outside of the government service. Uncle Sam as a Farmer Although farming was the main pursuit of the American people when Uncle Sam first appeared on the scene, and although 33% of the workers in the country are today busy on farms, it was many years before the government of the United States aided the agriculturalist. It began with printed reports which oddly enough were issued by the patent office on improved breeds of farm animals with attractive colored lithographs the immense moral land grant of eighteen sixty two was intended chiefly for agricultural education and the students and graduates of the resulting colleges have done much to spread a knowledge of scientific farming such as the adaptation of crops to soil improvements of seeds and grains the development of high-grade cattle and other farm animals and the protection of fruit and other crops from insect pests in 1889 was established a department of agriculture with a secretary sitting in the cabinet and in the thirty years that have followed the department has wonderfully expanded its usefulness for instance It has discovered the cause of the Texas cattle fever, which turned out to be a tick, and has very nearly put an end to that dangerous and destructive pest. It has found a serum to prevent hog cholera. It has established a system for checking the ravages of tuberculosis in cattle. Its Bureau of Plant Industry brings in new seeds and fruits from all over the world including such valuable varieties as the durum wheat from Russia, Siberian millet, and Egyptian dates. Closely allied with the work of the Department of Agriculture is the Irrigation Service, which is reclaiming millions of acres of land otherwise useless by furnishing it with unfailing water. The national forests are under the direction of the Department of Agriculture, which employs about 2,000 rangers and fire lookouts. The Biological Survey has successfully found methods for destroying the rats, chipmunks, mice, and ground squirrels, which cause losses of many millions to the farmers. Millions of copies of printed circulars and pamphlets of various phases of farming are printed No agency of the government reaches so great a number of the active workers and producers of the land. Uncle Sam in Trade Besides their agriculture, our forefathers always pushed shipping and trade. They were keen on the Indian fur trade and produced salt meats, grain naval stores, pitch tar and turpentine, potash and pearl ashes, timber and other things and sold them to European countries. In return, they imported calicoes and osnabrigs, which were a kind of linen, patasoi, which was an Italian silk, hardware, guns, tools, china, and the rich clothes, velvets, and satins, which colonial gentlemen delighted to wear. When the United States came into being as a government, it paid very little attention to commerce, leaving the merchants free to develop their trade with all parts of the world. It is only in recent years that Uncle Sam has realized how he can help the merchant, the shipper, and the vessel owner. Not until 1903 was there an office at Washington, charged with the duty to promote foreign and domestic commerce. Not until 1913 was there a distinct Department of Commerce, within which were grouped some of the most important services rendered by the nation to its people. For example, commerce includes such varied services as lighthouses, steamboat inspection, fisheries, navigation, and the Coast Survey. In addition, the Department of Commerce comes very near to the complicated organization of the business of the country through its Bureau of Corporations, Bureau of Standards of Weights and Measures, and Bureau of Foreign and Domestic Commerce, as well as the Census Bureau, which collects a variety of statistics. During the war, Uncle Sam stretched out his long arm still farther into the trade and business of the country and appointed a director of railroads to take control of most of the railroad lines in the land. It was that board which made possible the conveyance of the enormous quantities of stores and munitions which supplied our armies in France. Going still further, Uncle Sam took up the ship's carpenter's axe, the cocker's mallet, and the riveter's electric machine. All the shipyards in the country were brought under the control and direction of the government. The post office has been Uncle Sam's peculiar interest— ever since the federal government was founded, and he pushes that business even farther and farther. The letter, the newspaper, the book, and the package are sent flying from one of the long arms of Uncle Sam to another, till the business has come to total over $300 million a year. The registry service, special delivery system, and especially the parcel post, bring new conveniences and new proofs of our uncle's desire to be useful. In the course of the war, the whole system of telegraphs also was taken over. Many lines of business, especially the newspaper and periodical publishers, the mail order houses, and the advertisers, are dependent upon this field of government operation. Uncle Sam, as a watchman, Most of all, in times of danger and distress, do we turn eagerly to that multiple of ourselves which we call Uncle Sam. In the most peaceful days, the sailor in blue or the soldier in khaki stood behind the courts and the laws and the policemen. When rioters and anarchists raised their heads, they knew that Uncle Sam was drawn up around the corner and would stop them whenever they passed from noisy words... To desperate deeds. U.S. is the trench line which protects this country from invasion. U.S. builds the forts, works out plans of harbor defense, keeps powerful ships in commission, and raises clothes, equips, feeds, and pays the armies which are the clenched fist of the nation. Other governments, state, municipal, and local, offer many benefits But Uncle Sam is the only American known to foreign nations as the creator of armies and the fighter of battles. The mystic two letters, U.S., which are the emblems within the United States of peace and protection, become known in the World War far across the seas in many lands. Disturbed and broken nations welcome occupation by United States troops, they have learned that uncle sam is both strong and merciful that he hits his enemies hard but he raises up and saves the non-combatant the neutral and the vanquished never has the reputation of the united states of america stood so high as a stalwart resolute and unflinching power which puts out its wealth like water and enlists its manpower by millions when war must be fought Never has the Uncle Sam conception of the great North American Federation been so clear and so welcome in the minds of other peoples. What can any nation ask that is better and higher than to be hailed as the defender of civilization against the most furious blows, and at the same time as the friend, ally and protector of men of good will wherever found throughout the world? u s to hammer the hun uncle sam to succour the belgians and french to aid the armenian and the greek as the friend of mankind rivers harbors and parks in addition to the vast work of reclaiming desert lands protecting forests, and improving rivers, harbors, and canals, Uncle Sam has spent millions of dollars in opening up to the people great natural wonder realms of the country and putting them in order for outdoor pleasure grounds. Four national parks, the Yellowstone, the Yosemite, Glacier National Park, and Rainier National Park, have already been treated in individual numbers of the Mentor The future issues will be devoted to others of these magnificent public domains. The Grand Canyon, to which a mentor number has also been given, is not one of the national parks, but is a reserve set apart for all time by the government. Most of the national parks are situated in the western part of the continent. Through the beneficence and wisdom of Uncle Sam, there have been preserved for the American people the prehistoric dwellings of extinct races in Arizona and Colorado. Rocky Mountain Park, Colorado, Crater National Park, Southern Oregon, attract thousands of visitors annually. Every summer, innumerable groups of nature lovers camp and tramp in the government forest parks of California. In all, there are now 1919, 16 national parks in the United States and Alaska, with a total area of nearly 10,000 square miles. In 1916, a national park was also created in the territory of Hawaii, with an area of 75,295 acres. Use your government, to many of us, perhaps, Uncle Sam's government may appear to consist of a vast number of men, using up time and money in doing a great many things, in which we see no useful purpose whatever. Other men in the legislative department appear to be discussing at great length the framing of new laws, good, bad, or indifferent, and we criticize them accordingly the thought that we can capitalize our citizenship in a most valuable material way, and that we can make direct personal use of the government, whatever our calling in life may be, few of us have ever realized. We have pointed out some of the ways in which Uncle Sam helps his relatives. Whatever your chosen work may be, whatever your interest may be, turn to Uncle Sam and learn how valuable a friend is and support he can be. End of section 6